There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg and Colin. Greg, last week, as you know, we had Eric Ristabin join us from Russell Investments, and that was a fun conversation. That was fun, and I'd encourage people to listen to it because Eric had a very interesting way of describing the relationship between the economy and the stock market. Two drunk guys walking up a hill. Exactly. (laughs) Tied together with a rope. (laughs) Yeah, he discussed the state of global stock markets, and it was good to have him do that because the week before that, we had Mark Goldfried from Canoe Financial discussing the state of bond markets. And today, we're going to try to bring those things together in discussing the large or potentially large impact from short-term themes and trades, things that have been going on over the last few weeks, whether it be in the stock market or the bond market. And this discussion first came to us because of what happened a few weeks ago with this short squeeze that everybody in the world has heard about by now on a few companies in the U.S., notably GameStop. And Greg, I got to ask you, when you're talking to people and they bring up GameStop, are you surprised that who's talking about it these days? Well, sometimes I am because it cuts a pretty wide swath and it's been in the news so much that, yeah, everybody's talking about it. And the question I have to ask is, one month ago, who even knew what GameStop was? Well, I did because GameStop <laughs> owns EB Games in Canada. And that's the only reason I knew about it. And I know EB Games. I've just never knew that there was any connection to a company called GameStop. So go figure. Yeah. And isn't it interesting how so many people talk about this short squeeze? Like I would challenge most of those people that talk about it to actually explain to me how a short squeeze occurs. Exactly including many investment professionals. Exactly. But as much as this has been in the news, and I actually don't like even talking about GameStop, but it's just been very topical. There have been many versions of this happen in the past or this type of trade that's happened in the past. So today we're going to dig into some of these past issues, knowing full well that there will be future issues ahead and try to help investors prepare themselves on how to deal with those. So Greg, why don't you get us started with some things that haven't gone well in the past, things that we've lived through and have, I don't know, given us the experience to deal with them? Well, sure. I mean, it's a little bit of a history lesson. And for some people, the first topic I'm going to talk about is a little Calgary-based company called Briex. Ooh, Briex. There's going to be some people out there that are very familiar with Briex. They were investing at the time. And there's going to be maybe some younger people that are not overly familiar with the Briex saga. So I'm just going to delve into that a little bit because it was an interesting lesson for us. So Briex, the whole saga kind of made a big impact on me because it was exactly the time that I joined the investment industry 25 years ago, 1996. And here's the background. So it starts prior to that. It starts back in 1988. And there was a Calgary entrepreneur named David Walsh, and he incorporated this company, Brex Minerals, 
and he and his wife were the only shareholders in the company. And a year later, the shares went public, trading on the Alberta Stock Exchange at 30 cents a share. So this was a company, basically it was a shell company looking for something to do. So about five years later in 1993, David Walsh contacted an old acquaintance of his that he had met in Indonesia, John Felderhoff, and he wanted him to help him find gold properties. And they ended up settling on a site in Borneo, an area called Busang. It's in Indonesia and it's the middle of a jungle. Anyway, so they picked up this property for $80,000 and were going to search for gold. So they bring in a geologist from the Philippines and his name is Michael de Guzman. He figures prominently in this story. And Felderhoff had known de Guzman from a previous venture. So they've now got this gold property in the jungles of Borneo. In 1995, they drill for samples. And on analysis, they announced they found deposits that would indicate maybe two and a half million ounces of gold, which was a very big find. And on further analysis, they announced that there could be as much as 30 million ounces of gold on this property. So of course, at this time, here's a company that was worth 30 cents back in 1989, and the price is now moving up fairly dramatically. So in 1996, they actually have a shareholder meeting and hint at that meeting that there could be up to 100 million ounces of gold. So by now, analysts from various investment firms, both in Canada and the US and around the world are getting interested in this story. And they're pumping it up to a point where they believe that this could be one of the largest, or if not the largest gold find in the world. On this $80,000 property in Borneo, where all they've done is talk about how there could be two and a half million ounces, and then somehow it ends up being 100 million ounces. That's right. And by the way, at the peak, they were predicting there could be 200 million ounces of gold in this property. Well, why not 500 million or a billion? Well, why not? Exactly. So here we are. It's 1996. Briex shares are trading at $187. And the stock moves from the Alberta Stock Exchange to the Toronto Stock Exchange and does a 10 for one split. So the shares are now trading at, on a pre-split basis, 286.50. Okay, Let's move to August 1996. Other than the critical time of my returning to Calgary from training in Toronto, becoming an investment advisor, there was a lot of intrigue around BRIEX right now because the Indonesian government was going to cancel their permit because there was an ownership dispute at the property. And the bottom line is the Indonesian government, of course, wanted a piece of the action. And there were some regulatory things indicating that for any developments, they would have to own at least 10%. But they also wanted BRIEX to bring in partners. And there was a lot of intrigue around the partnership. Barrick Gold got into a big fight with Placer Dome, making a bid for this. And in the end, a large American company by the name of Freeport MacMoran, a big gold and copper company. Which is still around. Which is still around, was brought in to be a partner to develop this mine that supposedly had up to 200 million ounces of gold. Now, shortly after this restructuring of the company that had Freeport MacMoran, the Indonesian government and another Indonesian player as owners, there was a fire at the mine which destroyed the administration office and all of the geology records. Interesting. Interesting. A month later, 
Freeport notes discrepancies there because Freeport is coming in. So they have to do their own due diligence on the mine. And so they do their own sampling and they notice discrepancies between their own due diligence and the BREEX results. Now, one week later, remember Michael de Guzman, the chief geologist that was brought in by Felderhoff, he either falls or jumps out of a helicopter at 600 feet. Why would anybody jump out of a helicopter at 600 feet, Greg? And shortly after, Freeport McMoran is noting that they're not getting the same sampling results that Briex purported. So one week later, Freeport reports that it found insignificant amounts of gold at Busang. Briex shares fall to two and a half dollars in minutes, literally minutes. And I remember this because I was a newly minted investment advisor. And in May of that year, an investigation revealed that Briex, the Briex saga and story constituted the biggest fraud in the history of mining. And of course, Briex then went to zero and people who lost vast amounts of money would include institutional investors, pension funds, and a whole lot of individual investors. And what was interesting talking about individual investors is that up in St. Paul, Alberta, a little town northeast of Edmonton, there was, I believe, more Briex millionaires per capita Some of them were lucky enough to get out, just took advantage of a high price and sold out. Others lost everything that they invested. And it was really sad, obviously, for a lot of individual investors. Now, a couple of things that happened that made it interesting along the way. First of all, a lot of investment firms, analysts had strong buy ratings on this stock. They believed that this was a real story and that this was the largest gold find in the world. And that included some Canadian investment firms, as well as Lehman Brothers, were huge supporters of the stock in the US. Oh, and we'll get into Lehman Brothers later. We will indeed. And it turns out that one of the reasons the gold samples that they identified, so Michael de Guzman, the helicopter jumping geologist, was actually shaving down. Initially, he shaved down his wedding band to <laughs> sprinkle the samples with gold from his wedding band. And then he subsequently bought about $80,000 of gold from different sources and shaved them down to <laughs> sprinkle them through the sample. So, of course, it was a fraud from start to finish. But again, it really caught the world's attention and people got on board because it was such an exciting story, particularly for people in Alberta, because it was an Alberta company. So, Colin, you were a young child when the whole Briex story unfolded. When you listen to the story, <laughs> do you see any red flags? <laughs> Well, one red flag is I wasn't that young of a child. I mean, I I think I was 23 at the time. And actually, I had just moved to Calgary when this all unraveled for Briex. So I remember driving down 14th Street and seeing the Briex sign on the building. And I knew what it was, even though I didn't know much about the stock market at the time. But yeah, red flags. Well, I mean, the whole story is a red flag. It is. Having somebody tell you that their product is worth a hundred times more than what they originally started at, that's a red flag. It is. And part of it to me, when I look back, it's easy in hindsight. Okay, a small junior mining company based in Calgary with a guy that has relatively little success in finding gold suddenly discovers the world's largest gold source in a jungle. You've got political risks, you've got the Indonesian government withdrawing permits unless they carved a bigger chunk of the gold mine. Certainly, I think when your chief geologist jumps out of a helicopter or is thrown out of a helicopter, whatever the situation is, that might be a tip-off that something is wrong. 
when we make light of it in hindsight, of course, but it's just an example of what can happen when something captures your imagination the way Briex did. The guy that fell out of the helicopter. So when I moved to Calgary, I remember I was playing men's night hockey. And one of the guys that I played with was actually a geologist that worked at Briex. Really? Interesting. He told me sort of some of the inside scoop on that, that he knew, but he didn't know much. Just that his boss fell. (laughs) So Greg, the Briex story obviously is very close, as you say, to Calgarians and Canadians. And it's one that we can always look back on and say, how can people be so gullible to fall for such a thing? And the way I would relate it to today's discussion is just like we talked about at the beginning, like GameStop. How are investors so gullible to actually buy into this story? But it's just a new version of Briex. It is, and it just speaks to enthusiasm, excitement, speculation, the whole, everyone has a dream of getting rich, getting rich quickly, getting rich easily. And that really appeals to people. And it actually, when you look at what happened, and it was starting around the same time, by the way, but when we get into, I want to talk a little bit about the tech bubble which is sometimes called the dot-com bubble or the internet bubble. But this was 1996-97 when the whole Briex thing unfolded. The tech bubble was already in the works because the tech bubble really refers to the time in the late 1990s when the NASDAQ Composite Index and the NASDAQ represented many technology companies. It's the exchange where a lot of technology companies were listed experienced pretty rapid growth. And back in 1995, the NASDAQ was trading under 1,000 and it peaked at over 5,000 in 2000. So a growth of almost seven times growth in a period of five years. So this bubble, it started growing slowly and then really accelerated. I think in 1999, the NASDAQ was up 89% that year. And then the bubble burst in March of 2000. And from there, the index lost about 78% of its value through 2002. And basically from 2000, it took 15 years to get back to that 5,000 level again. So massive gain from 1,000 to 5,000, massive decline back to 1,300 or so. Let me tell you something that happened during then too. A friend of mine who was from Saskatchewan, which we reference a lot in our show, One of his buddies started a tech company. It was like an online shopping company, kind of like Staples or something like that. And he was at the exchange in New York when the company was listed. And his friend gave all of his friends a number of shares for free. They were like, if you're my buddy, I'm going to give you shares in my company. The thing is, you had to hold them for six months. So the day that company started trading, my friend instantly made $7 million on paper. It's not a bad day. It wasn't a bad day, except six months later, the company was worthless. Well, that didn't work out so well. So that would have been exactly what you're talking about. That was the end of the bubble or the later stages. Exactly. So what happened during that period? I mean, we're talking basically about a five-year period. Well, let's call it a seven-year period from the lows to the highs and back to the lows. The bubble itself grew out of some combination of, we call it theme-based or fad-based investing back then. There was a ton of venture capital around for startups because of some of the early successes. The more success they have, the more capital becomes available. And interestingly, it was partly the failure of a lot of those dot-com companies to turn a profit that actually 
kind of combined and led to more of the growth because I'll talk a little bit about what happened in the whole justification of valuations. Also, this was a time when the Federal Reserve had been keeping interest rates quite low in the US, and so there was a lot of cheap money. The reason for that is that they were worried about the Y2K issue. And most people will remember Y2K, the rolling over of clocks to the 2000 from 1999. And Well, anybody and that owned concerns. a VCR would know Y2K because they were worried exactly. if their programming would work. That's right. And so out of an abundance of caution over Y2K, the Federal Reserve was making money cheap by having very low interest rates. So all of that sort of combined to have people pouring money into companies that they hoped one day would make a profit. And so cheap money, easy capital, lots of overconfidence in the market, and of course, pure speculation. And part of that came from the success of initial public offerings or IPOs. So by 1999, 39% of all venture capital was going to internet companies, 39%. 295 out of 457 IPOs were related to internet companies. And again, as I was mentioning, but to justify these high prices, companies and analysts and investors stopped looking at price to earnings because these companies didn't have any earnings. And so they started looking at other things like, oh, price to sales or some sort of other fundamental measure to make up for the fact that there was no earnings to report. So the IPO market was in a frenzy. Stock prices were tripling or more in one day. You know, it was a crazy time. And by the way, there were some great companies that came out of that time, but the majority of them went bust. So in the spring of 2000, the Federal Reserve began tightening monetary policy. Interest rates started going up. The market peaked. Some of the largest companies themselves were selling their own stock. And a combination of all of those things sparked panic among investors. And in March of 2000, of course, was the market high. We can point to the exact day. And most dot-com companies that had no revenue, no access to investment capital went bust, like the company your friend was involved in. It's interesting because, once again, like Briex, the whole frenzy around internet companies, dot-com companies, it captured their imagination. And of course, there was lots of justification around how the internet was going to change the world, which it did. But most of these companies were not based on sound business models or had any kind of plan to actually turn a profit. And in the end, if you're investing in a company for longer than a few days or a few months, you need to see earnings from that company in order to justify the investment. And so that's what happened. And certainly it was a wild time. But again, things fell apart almost as quickly as they grew. So just more indication that we have to be careful when something really captures our imagination to make sure that we're investing for solid investment reasons and not for dreams of great riches without having to work very hard. But I think that's the problem is that fear is transitory and greed is part of the human soul is a saying that I've been told <laughs> in the past. And it happens and you see it. Like you mentioned that people stopped looking at price earnings multiples. That's a core function of finance or finance as they call it in some places. But how much do you pay for a stock based on the earnings of the company? And we went through an example of this the other day, just to give the listeners some reference. So Intel currently, if you bought the stock of Intel, you are buying $1 of its company earnings. And it's trading at roughly 10 to 15 times that $1. So in plain language, it takes you 10 to 15 years to recoup your investment. 
is a pretty straightforward analogy of how price earnings works. Amazon is trading at 60 to 1. So it takes you 60 years to recover that $1 of earnings. Tesla is trading at something like 1,500 to 1. So it would take you 1,500 years to recover that investment. That's a long shot. Exactly. People that invest in those high growth companies hope, well, they don't hope, they require that these companies will continue to show the same kind of exponential growth year after year after year in order to justify those high prices that they're paying relative to earnings. Now, the other thing I heard you say was that it was March that it all unfolded during the tech bubble, correct? Correct. That is interesting because March is getting a bad rap these days. Like last year, March 23rd, 2020 was the low on the global stock markets based on the global pandemic. March 9th of 2009 was the absolute low during the global credit crisis. And March of, was it 2000 or 2001? Yep. Well, that was the peak. That was the peak. March is an interesting time to be investing for sure. Yeah, markets tend to swing. Those are good stories. And I want to share one myself. And we're only going to share one more and then we'll get into something else. But my introduction to how things really work in the world came during that global financial crisis or global credit crisis. And to your point of Briex, if it seems too good to be true, then it probably is. You remember those days when you had a heated housing market fueled by greed. It was easy to borrow money. Banks were, in the U.S. anyways, were lending these, even these things called ninja loans. Remember ninja loans, Greg? Oh, yes. No income, no job or assets required. I mean, what can go wrong with that type of scenario, right? No red flag there. Yeah, you didn't even have to prove your income to qualify for a mortgage, which is the largest purchase somebody will make in their life in most cases. Having introductory interest rates for those mortgages in what they call subprime loans, so very low interest rates on the initial mortgage payments, only to have them balloon later with a very inflated interest rate. What could go wrong with that scenario, Greg? Well, exactly. And a lot of the borrowers thought, well, that's no problem because the housing market is going up so high, I'll be able to sell this house, capture a large profit, pay off the loan and move on to my next purchase. Exactly. But then at that same time, financial institutions and market participants were basketing these mortgages or loans into what were at the time rated triple A bond-like portfolios, which actually seems reasonable, but then creating a synthetic basket of the original loans that also obtained AAA status, and then doing it again with the same synthetic asset. So really, you're taking one asset and you're creating three pools of mortgages on it. Exactly. What could go wrong with that, Greg? I can't even imagine. (laughs) And that's one of the reasons why these financial institutions didn't mind giving out those ninja loans, because they weren't going to hold them on their books. They were going to basket them up and sell them off. And at the same time, having insurance on the loans in the form of what are called credit default swaps, a form of insurance that protects against the default of interest payments from a company, and then basketing those credit default swaps into their own form of bond pool or preferred share pool and selling those to the marketplace with a AAA rating. What could go wrong with that, Greg? I think that's what they call financial engineering. It's exactly what they call it and red flags all over the place. And to that point, in 2008, 
when we asked that question to a structured product desk that we did some business with, we said, this seems wrong. It seems like so many things could go wrong with this. What did they say? They said, the only thing that could go wrong with this is if you have a credit market that was worse than the Great Depression or the recession of the 1930s. And Greg, what happened? Exactly that. Exactly that. The one thing that would be a disaster for those structured products is what happened in that global financial crisis. So this is just the equivalent of Briac saying they have two and a half million ounces and then coming back and saying they have 200 million ounces. It's the same formula. But actually, this one had much more market participation. So during this period of time, this is when that book, The Big Short, was written by Michael Lewis, since been made into a movie. I watched The Big Short with some family members, and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed that movie, but I had to explain it later to like my mom because she was like, what's an asset-backed security? And that was the theme. So we got to learn all kinds of acronyms in 2008, 2009, like what is a collateralized debt obligation? What's an asset-backed security? How does it differ from a mortgage-backed security? And as I mentioned earlier, just what the heck is a credit default swap? These were things that we all came to know because of what happened. Because what happened, Greg? It collapsed. Sure it did. In the end, when those mortgage loans all went bad, it had to in the case of the mortgage side of the problem, it had to end somewhere. Somebody ended up having to lose money. It might not have been the banks that put out the loans in the first place, but somebody had to pay. Well, and this is similar to the short squeeze play that people are doing on GameStop. There are people that invested at a very high premium because they were greedy and they wanted to get in on this trade or they had a fear of missing out. But actually, they're getting taught, unfortunately, hopefully not a very expensive lesson to them, but during 2008, 2009, what happened? There were massive institutions that either failed or were nationalized. And here's a short list of them. One you mentioned earlier, Lehman Brothers. Lehman Brothers was a big deal. That was a 100-plus-year institution. Huge market participant. Bear Stearns, Washington Mutual, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which have since been, I think nationalized is the right term. Is that the right term? That's right. Countrywide Financial, Merrill Lynch, Royal Bank of Scotland, ABN AMRO, Wachovia, UBS, Anglo-Irish Bank, and the last one I'll mention is AIG, or American International Group. All of those companies were massive companies, and they got caught up in this. So I guess the theme I'm trying to say here to investors is, it's understandable why people get caught up in a GameStop short squeeze trade on a Reddit forum of Wall Street Bets people. Because these were companies that got caught up in basically the largest Ponzi scheme in the world. Is that a fair statement? Yep, I think so. And GameStop, and we can talk a little bit more about it in a minute, but GameStop had some other unique features to it that are related to more and more people being able to get into this business and have brokerage accounts and make trades without having to pay for them directly. Exactly. So it just opened up a whole new venue for more people to participate than would previously. Yeah. And just to give it a reference point, I went to Los Angeles years ago. I had a friend who moved to Hollywood trying to make his mark in acting. It didn't work out for him as an actor, but he's still around here back in Canada. But I remember I was driving around Los Angeles with him and one of his friends in a brand new truck. And I said, geez, this is a nice truck. And the guy said, yeah, yeah, I just picked it up. And 
cost me about a hundred bucks a month for the loan payment. And I couldn't understand, Greg, how you could have a hundred dollar a month loan payment on a brand new pickup truck with all the bells and whistles. And it I seems said, well, cheap. It is. And I said, how is that possible? And he said, well, it's a 30-year loan. How do you create a 30-year loan <laughs> on a vehicle that it has a depreciating asset? That truck's not going to be around for 30 years. Or if it is, no. that guy's not going to own it for 30 years. So that kind of reinforces sort of how that credit market was, I don't want to say swayed, but just wrong. Yeah, right on. So Greg, a couple other examples before we get into our wrap-up in a few minutes on expectations, but other examples of companies or themes that are in this sort of GameStop scenario, maybe give us a couple that you have off the top of your head. If anybody remembers sort of follow-on from the tech bubble, companies like Enron and WorldCom and Nortel, actually a lot of those companies, there's a lot of similarities about what went wrong with those companies. And certainly in Canada, where we're all very familiar with Nortel because it would became the market darling. At one point, Nortel itself was 20% of the Canadian stock market. It spun out of Bell Canada, BCE. And so people that owned BCE shares got a fair bit of Nortel. And so there was a very broad ownership of Nortel and people got very excited about it. And in all of the cases, Enron, WorldCom, Nortel, what ultimately took the companies down were what I would call creative accounting practices, where either outstanding loans or certain assets were moved off their books into, what did they call them? Special purpose vehicles or... Oh, SIVs, special investment vehicles. Yes. And by doing that, they were able to show balance sheets that didn't actually match reality, but they were a lot more positive than would have been. And so in the end, these once great and huge companies ended up becoming worthless. And not only in the case of Enron, not only did it take down the company, it also took down one of the largest accounting firms in the world at that time, Arthur Anderson. Yeah, I remember that. And Arthur Anderson, you'll note, is no longer in existence. And their consulting business was spun off into something which is now called Accenture. But just an example of, or examples of companies that were once great, but tried to fool people into thinking they were doing better than they were, not by salting their samples with gold shaved off their wedding ring <laughs> by adjusting their books accordingly. Maybe the guy just didn't want to be married. <laughs> no, I guess so. <laughs> and what about our friend Bernie Madoff? Oh, Bernie Madoff. Yeah. Prime example of what could go wrong. I mean, you talk about creative accounting practices. How about just stealing everybody's money and telling them they earn 12%? The interesting thing about that, and I think what ultimately got people looking at Bernie Madoff, which was a Ponzi scheme, by the way. And just for anybody who's not familiar, a Ponzi scheme is just where you bring in investors, you use the money for your own personal gain. And in order to pay back the original investors, you bring in new investors and you bring their money in to repay the first investors and so on and so on. And in the case of Bernie Madoff, what tipped everybody off was the fact that his returns, his fake returns were exactly 1% a month, month after month, year after year. And anybody who's in the investing business knows that that's probably the most unlikely thing to ever happen in an investment is that you'll just get 1% a month forever because that basically is zero volatility. Well, actually, that never happens. that's right. And we looked through and looked at how many on a daily basis, on a monthly basis, on a yearly basis, how often the stock market is up. Because to generate 1% a month, you'd have to be on the positive side every month. 
Correct. So on a daily basis, the U.S. stock market is up 53% of the time, which means that it's negative 47% of the time. So that's still ahead. On a monthly basis, the market is up 63% of the time, meaning it's down 37% of the time. And if you extend it out to a year, the stock market is up 73% of the time, meaning it is down 27% of the time. So there's no guarantee that the market will go up when you invest in it, but the odds are in your favor over the longer term, which doesn't align with what you just mentioned about the Madoff return rate of 1% exactly per month. He would have had to be up 100% of the time every month. Exactly. So Greg, I know this episode is getting a little long in the tooth, but we've just sort of identified all these themes that have had investors lose money over the years for various reasons. But what can investors do going forward with this information? How can they protect themselves? We may start sounding like broken records here, but I think when you go back to basics and you focus on the things that you can control, and we talk about this a lot, there's basically three things we can control. We can control our asset allocation. We can control our diversification. That's your only free lunch in investing is diversification, which gives you the opportunity to capture the same rate of return with a lower volatility, a lower rate of volatility as another type of investment. We can control costs. We want to make sure we keep our costs down. We can focus on factors of return. So when we look at the long term, what do we know? What does history tell us about some of the factors that will lead to higher expected returns? And we can focus on those. We've talked about them in the past, of course, value stocks, buying stocks that are not trading at 1,500 times earnings, but focusing on stocks that are trading at 12 times earnings or 15 times earnings. And again, don't fall into some of the behavior traps that we've talked about previously. And listen, as you and I have talked, there's room for gambling. It gives you some excitement and something to, in the old days, I would say, open up the newspaper and look at the stock. But now, of course, you turn on the computer and check out the stock price. But you have to remember that very few people get rich off their investments. Their investments are there to provide a good, consistent, long-term rate of return that'll help you achieve your financial goals. And there are very few millionaires out there that made them by catching a GameStop or a Brex or the tech bubble or anything like that. Unless they live in St. Paul, Alberta, maybe they sold their Brex shares. Exactly right. <laughs> and interesting, and not to belabor the point, but when you come back to it, anybody that bought Brex and sold out considers themselves a genius because they made money on Brex. And I just have to remind them, well, you made money on a fraud. There was no gold. So all that happened was you bought the stock at a certain price and you sold it at a higher price for no reason. That's the difference between investing and speculating. And people can speculate, but we would tell them, if you want to speculate, pick an amount of money, 5% of your portfolio and speculate with it. But let's keep the 95% following the themes and the strategies that we know will help give you a reasonable investment experience over time. Exactly. Or the term that I like to use is rest and digest, which I've heard a while ago and this applies to investing as well. So anytime something seems obvious, I guess you got to question it or even ignore it. Stick to your plan, stay invested, rebalance your portfolio a couple times a year, ignore the noise, the entertainment media or information pornography is another term I've recently heard that describes that. But if you're properly invested, then you can just rest and digest and let the rest take care of itself. It's simple, but it's not easy. Exactly. But it definitely can be simple. You bet. 
Hey, so to wrap it up here, and this is very thematic, I am reading a book right now called Billion Dollar Lessons, which is, it basically breaks down all of the massive corporate failures over the last, I don't know, 30 years, and it attributes them to five or six overarching reasons, and financial engineering is one of them. Interesting. Yeah. (laughs) But what do you do on these days? What are you watching or what are you reading? Well, we just finished season three of Yellowstone which was very depressing, of course, because now you end up having to wait another nine or 10 months before season four. So they left it. I don't know if you've been watching it. Don't spoil it for me. I'm in the middle of season three. Well, what happens? Is, <laughs> <laughs> let's just say they leave it on a cliffhanger. Okay. So you'll enjoy it. But unfortunately, as this pandemic drags on into our 11th month of lockdowns here, if you don't read and you don't binge watch on Netflix or do jigsaw puzzles, there's not much to do. That's true. Especially as it's cold right now, there's even less to do or less desire to do anything. So that would be the local event is a cold winter currently. Well, let's hope that next week when this podcast comes out and we record another one, the weather will be better. Exactly. Let's wrap it up there today. So Greg, thanks for your input. Thanks for everybody joining us on the free lunch today. As Greg mentioned, there is only... I would say three free lunches you can have, Greg. Asset allocation, diversification, and this podcast are the only free lunches. There you go. Right on. All right. Well said. Next time. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.